This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. In this two-part episode, I'm detailing the case of one killer that turned the once peaceful and serene Adirondack Mountains into a playground for his dark fantasies. We'll pick up the story where we left off last week. Robert Garrow had progressed from committing burglaries to kidnapping and rape. In the summer of 1973, he picked up two hitchhiking college students and attempted to abduct them. After they managed to escape, he was arrested and charged with drug possession and unlawful imprisonment. But Garrow would skate on these charges, and before the summer was out, he'd commit a series of assaults, kidnapping, and murders while still managing to evade justice. In the early 1970s, when Robert Garrow claimed most of his victims, the term serial killer had yet to be coined. But Garrow could more accurately be described as a spree killer. Serial killers are typically classified as someone who murders three or more people with the murders taking place over more than a month and with a significant period of time in between them. Spree killers, on the other hand, also have multiple victims, but within a short amount of time and in multiple locations. There is little to no break in between murders. Robert Guerra would begin his killing spree in July of 1973. In less than 20 days, he would kidnap seven victims and commit four murders. This is part two of Spree Killers, Robert Guerra. Syracuse University sophomores Lenny Garner and Karen Lutz escaped an attempted kidnapping by a stranger who offered to drive them back to their dorm after they spent a night out dancing. Before he'd sped away, they'd memorized his license plate number. Soon after they reported the incident, officers knocked on the door of 109 Berwyn Avenue in Syracuse, where 37-year-old Robert Garrow greeted them. He was arrested and booked into jail. Garrow called a local attorney, Frank Armani. He'd enlisted the attorney for two prior legal issues, both relatively minor. Armani and Garrow had spoken on several occasions, and Armani pegged him as a regular, hardworking family man. Garrow, although physically imposing, standing at just under six feet tall, weighing over 200 pounds and muscular, was often quiet and thoughtful during these conversations, Armani recalled. He also knew that Garrow, unlike the attorney himself, never cursed or drank alcohol. Armani was very surprised then to hear that a young couple had accused Garrow of trying to abduct them and threatening to, quote, blow their heads off if they didn't comply with his demands. Surely something wasn't right here, Armani thought. But Garrow explained that after he'd offered the hitchhikers a ride home, they'd inadvertently left a bag of marijuana behind in his car. Afraid he'd report it to the police, Garrow surmised, the students instead made up a story about being kidnapped to avoid getting in trouble with the law. Garrow adamantly denied their allegations. Armani believed him. The following spring, when Garrow had his day in court, the jury also believed him. Garrow was acquitted on all counts. Two months after Robert Garrow dodged the kidnapping charge, he was back out on the prowl. It appears that Garrow needed to exert power and control over not just women, but men as well. His pattern was to catch a couple unaware, 
and threaten them with a weapon before leading them to an isolated spot. He'd then subdue the male by knocking him unconscious or tying him up. The female would then be taken to a separate location and raped. But like most serial murderers, Garrow adapted his modus operandi with each crime, learning from his mistakes. In 1961, after being identified by his victims, he was convicted and spent seven years in prison. He got away with a second attack, this time choosing two female victims. He avoided a second prison stint when the women, too traumatized to face testifying in court, declined to press charges. Why then did Garrow once again choose a couple as his next victims? I believe that subduing a single female, or even more than one, did not give him the feeling of power that he craved. Perhaps as a response to the childhood abuse inflicted upon him by his mother and father, his violent revenge fantasy was only fulfilled when he gained control over both sexes during these attacks. Overpowered by Lenny Garner, the couple escaped. Once again, Garrow was arrested. He only avoided another prison sentence when Garrow's attorney convinced a jury that his client, a hardworking family man, had been falsely accused by two marijuana-smoking teens, who, it was implied to the jury, just might be drug dealers. Narrowly escaping this close call, Garrow altered his approach. On May 31, 1973, while driving through Geddes, a small suburb of Syracuse, Garrow spotted two little girls wearing brightly colored dresses walking down a quiet street. He followed them as they headed toward a small shopping center. The girls, ages 10 and 11, were permitted by their parents to walk into town to purchase ice cream cones. Garrow approached them before they reached the shopping center, flashing a fake police badge, and spoke with them sternly. You need to come with me, he growled at them, pointing to a car across the street. He told them he was taking them to the police station and... something about a lost dog? It was very random and appeared to be a ruse he didn't plan out too carefully, because he drove around aimlessly for the next several minutes. The girls, wide-eyed and confused, remained mostly silent in the back seat. Eventually, he stopped the car and parked in an empty lot. Leading the girls into the nearby hills, behind the covering of trees and bushes, he spread out a blanket on the ground and ordered them onto it. Pointing the gun at them, which turned out to be fake, he forced them to perform sex acts on him. He kept the terrified children captive for several hours before releasing them. As traumatic as this had to be on the girls, they could still give police investigators a detailed description of the man in his car. Just two days later, Garrow was arrested and charged with kidnapping and child molestation. His wife Edith posted the $2,500 bail set by the judge, and Garrow was released. Garrow again hired Frank Armani as his defense attorney. His court date was set for July 12th, but he didn't show. The day before he was set to appear in an Onondaga County courthouse, Robert Garrow abducted another young woman. 16-year-old Alicia Houck was a student at Corcoran High School in Syracuse. On July 11, 1973, her father dropped her in front of the school where she was attending summer school classes. But spending a sweltering July day inside a classroom is torture for any teen, and a mid-morning fire drill gave her the opening she needed to duck out of her afternoon classes. She told a friend she was leaving and began walking home. Robert Garrow lived just two and a half miles east of the high school. Driving through town, he spotted Alicia walking alone in the middle of the day. Whether he confronted her with a weapon, or as he would later claim, picked her up while hitchhiking is unclear. No one ever saw Alicia alive again, and it would be months before anyone would learn her fate.
In the summer of 1973, Robert Garrow was already responsible for the kidnap and molestation of two little girls and the disappearance of a teenager. He was a no-show to his first court date to answer charges for the child molestation. When Garrow failed to appear for a second time on July 26, the judge warned Armani if his client wasn't in court in 24 hours, a bench warrant would be issued for Garrow's arrest. Meanwhile, Garrow was on the hunt for a couple to overpower and dominate. The twisted urge lurking in the deep recesses of his mind for most of his adult life had not yet been satisfied. He knew he was most likely facing another long prison term and time was running out. Garrow also expressed to his attorney his fear of being targeted and in danger if convicted. He'd witnessed how child molesters, considered the lowest of the low, were treated by other prisoners and wanted to avoid this at all costs. This fear may have been his motivation to ramp up his violent attacks in the last few days of July 1973. If he was going to go away for life, or to his death as Garrow feared, he may have decided to throw all caution to the wind and live out his murderous fantasies. While Frank Armani was working to track down his client, Garrow was doing some tracking of his own. This time, his hunting ground was the almost 10,000 square miles of the Adirondacks, the upstate New York Forest Preserve. Garrow had grown up in and around the Adirondacks and knew its trails, roads, hills, and forests very well. The first couple chosen by Garrow just happened to be tourists who were in the wrong place at the wrong time. Daniel Porter, better known as Danny, was a 23-year-old Harvard University graduate. After graduation, he founded a political consulting company with a partner, Pat Cadell. Cadell, a former politician himself, had connections to the Kennedy family. Danny Porter had held an important position in Senator George McGovern's presidential campaign and was a rising star as a political strategist. Danny's girlfriend was Susan Petz. Sue, 21, originally from Chicago, Illinois, lived in Boston and studied journalism at Boston University. She was petite, standing just five foot two inches tall, but was fearless as a cub reporter for her local community newspaper in East Boston. Driven and hardworking, Danny and Sue decided to take a break from school and work and spend the weekend camping in the peaceful Adirondack Mountains. They were looking forward to getting away from the pressure and hustle and bustle of the city and sleeping under the stars, canopied by tall spruce and pine trees. The couple drove out of Boston on Saturday, July 14th, around noon. They made two stops for equipment and supplies on the way. Their final stop was to purchase gas around 8 p.m. A meticulous record keeper, Danny noted this gas purchase in a notebook, logging his vehicle odometer reading at 17,881 total miles. This would indicate to investigators that the couple had not made it much further before confronted by Garrow. The car, found abandoned days later, would now read 17,949 miles on the odometer, less than 70 miles than last recorded. Cadell was expecting Danny Porter back in time for a Monday morning meeting and was surprised when he didn't arrive bright and early. He was even more surprised when Porter didn't call to inform him of his delay. Still, Cadell went on with his day, distracted by unfolding political events. The U.S. Senate was in the midst of the Watergate hearings. On this day, Nixon White House assistant Alexander Butterfield reluctantly admitted to the Senate that a new system that automatically recorded conversations had been installed in the White House. Conversations were recorded in the Oval Office, the Cabinet Room, and even in the President's private office. This revelation would dramatically affect the investigation and lead to Richard Nixon's eventual resignation as president. But by 4 p.m., when he still hadn't heard from Porter, 
Cadell called the New York State Forest Ranger's office. A ranger then directed him to call the state police. But Danny Porter hadn't given anyone his exact destination of where he planned to set up camp. So they explained it would be like looking for a needle in a haystack to find someone in the vast wilderness of the Adirondacks. They advised Cadell to wait a while longer, assuring him his friend would most likely show up soon. Two days later on the 18th, a resident of Weavertown, a hamlet in the Adirondacks, was driving down Waddell Road. The driver, passing a BMW parked on the side of the road, recalled seeing the same vehicle parked there the weekend prior. It wasn't one he recognized as belonging to a local, but the matter quickly slipped his mind. But on his return home that evening, he saw the car parked in the same spot. He decided to call the police to report it. Maybe it was a stolen vehicle, he thought. Troopers didn't arrive until after midnight and found the car locked. When they ran the license plate number, they learned it was registered as a company car leased to an employee of Cambridge Survey Research, Daniel Porter. The following day, the BMW was towed to a local service station for inspection. Cadell received a call informing him of the abandoned vehicle. He'd been frustrated by the police's lack of cooperation in the search for Danny and Sue. He thought this was at least a lead. However, the report he received from the state police wasn't very helpful. He was told there was no sign of an injured party or anything they deemed worthy of investigation at that time. Beyond frustrated, Pat Cadell arrived with three friends to Weavertown. On the morning of July 20th, six days after Danny and Sue left for their camping trip, Cadell phoned the state police, demanding to be taken to where Porter's car had been found. A trooper escorted the men to Waddell Road, but drove off immediately afterward, leaving the four men to conduct their own search. The first thing they noticed was the area was not a place anyone would choose for a campsite. It was deserted, with no facilities around and no logical place to set up camp. They found out in four directions to search the area on foot. Before much time had passed, one of the men saw something white lying just off the road. It was an Adidas sneaker. Moving closer, he discovered it wasn't a discarded shoe, but was attached to a body. Danny Porter's body was lying slumped over behind a tree, just 25 feet from the main road. His shirt was caked with dried blood. It was obvious he'd been dead for some time. An autopsy would determine that Danny Porter had been stabbed in the chest four times and had died due to blood loss and shock. As one of the men ran to phone police to report the grim discovery, the others continued searching for Sue Pets, but there was no sign of her. Henry McCabe with the New York State Police was assigned the case. A senior investigator for the Bureau of Criminal Investigations Unit, or the BCI, his first order of business was to find the missing girl. When the call came in that Danny Porter was found murdered, McCabe was with the parents of both Sue Pets and Danny Porter. They had come to file an official missing persons report. McCabe had to share the awful news with the already distraught parents. The investigator scoured the area where the body was found and discovered a portion of a white nylon rope, a brown shoelace, and no fingerprints other than those of Danny and Sue. The search for Sue Pets continued. McCabe considered Pat Cadell, Danny's business partner, a possible suspect in his murder. The investigator had questioned him about his relationship with the victim and discovered that, as part of their business arrangement, Cadell was beneficiary to a $150,000 life insurance policy on Danny Porter. McCabe's interest in Cadell was piqued upon learning how many times he had contacted police after his business partner went missing. The investigator's theory was that Cadell had arranged or was responsible for Porter's death, 
but needed police to find the body to collect on the life insurance. When it didn't happen, he conducted his own search and just so happened to find the body. He didn't factor into his theory that Cadell may have genuinely been concerned about his friend's welfare or frustrated by the lack of concern shown by police. Upon repeated questioning by police, Cadell and the others decided it was in their best interest to enlist certain friends to vouch for their character. Senator Ted Kennedy himself called the BCI to personally vouch for Cadell and the others, but McKay wasn't entirely convinced. Cadell was not arrested, but was told by investigators not to leave town. They ultimately cleared him as a suspect. McCabe used all the county's resources to conduct a thorough search for Sue Pets, including working investigators and officers around the clock in 12-hour shifts to canvas a wide swath of the area. But the terrain was difficult to navigate. It was filled with dense forests, lakes, swamps, rocky hillsides, and millions of trails, dirt roads, and paths. For the next week, McCabe led the biggest police search in county history, encompassing several towns and their surrounding areas, but came up empty. They concluded that the couple had likely given a hitchhiker a ride and were murdered for this kindness. But Danny Porter's friends knew he was too cautious to ever do such a thing. A full two weeks had passed since Susan Petz went missing, and investigators were no closer to finding her than when they'd begun. As the search widened, swamps were dragged for a body but the sheer number of swamps, ponds, and lakes in the Adirondacks made their task nearly impossible. While the search continued, 30 miles away, Philip Dombleski, Carolyn Malinowski, David Freeman, and Nick Riorello entered Adirondack Park to set up camp. The campsite where they had planned to stay was full, and it had begun to rain, so they made do with a flat portion of ground just off Old Route 8 and set up their tents. They spent the next day hiking and enjoying the lake before turning in for the night. On Sunday morning, Carol and her fiancé Dave decided to sleep in, while Dave's friends, Nick and Phil, were up early to get a little fishing in before driving home later that afternoon. Dave woke upon hearing a sound outside his tent. He assumed it was the other guys returning from the lake. He looked at his watch and saw that it was close to 9 a.m. Instead, he saw a man enter the tent. He was middle-aged, wearing glasses and a fedora. He squatted in the middle of the tent, cradling a rifle across his legs. The lenses of his eyeglasses were the type that automatically darkened to shade the sun. Dave couldn't see his eyes, but something about his body language and energy was very predatory and threatening. The man, Robert Garrow, told the startled couple that he'd run out of gas and needed to siphon some from their car. Startled into silence, the couple quickly began to dress and then were directed out into the campsite by Garrow. Just then, Nick and Phil returned. They assumed the stranger was some sort of park worker, perhaps telling them it was prohibited to camp in that area. Instead, the man pointed a rifle at the four of them, saying, I'm taking some gas, and I don't want anyone to find out about this, so I'm going to tie you to trees. He directed them forward into the woods, and following close behind, pointed the weapon at their backs. They continued until they were under a thickly canopied forest area. As they walked, 18-year-old Phil tried to reason with Garrow, offering him any money they had, and saying they wouldn't report him if he just took it and left. Garrow began to grow impatient and growled at Phil to stop talking. He said he'd killed before and he'd kill again if they didn't follow his orders. When they reached a tree, he ordered Phil to sit on the ground with his back against it. Pulling a length of rope from his back pocket, Garrow now pulled out a knife and cut a piece from it. 
He handed it to Dave and told him to bind Phil's hands together behind the tree trunk. He then repeated this process with the others. He walked them to another tree at least 40 yards away from Phil and directed Dave to tie up Nick in the same manner. Next, it was Dave's turn to be tied up. Carol made Carol tie up her boyfriend, but she was so scared her hands kept shaking and she couldn't make them work properly. Finally, she was able to complete the task. Garrow then checked all three men's bindings to make sure they were tight, bringing Carol along with him. He then marched her to another tree, placed a tarp on the ground, and made her sit. As he tied her hands behind the tree, he told her, I'll be right back, and I'm going to take you with me. Then I'll probably let you go. Carol could not see the others from where she was tied, nor could the men see each other. Garrow had made sure to isolate each one from the others. She expected him to return to the road to siphon the gas from their cars as he'd said, but instead he walked back deeper into the woods. Phil had been tied furthest away, and now she could hear the teen speaking to the abductor, their words muffled. She next heard Phil's voice raised, speaking faster, his tone on the verge of hysteria. The next sound was a horrifying guttural sound like choking or vomiting. She began to call out, Phil, are you okay? Are you all right? She was nearly hysterical with fear. Everything went quiet, and then she heard the man speaking calmly. It'll be okay. It's almost done. It'll be all right when it's over, or words to that effect. Robert Garrow had singled out 18-year-old Philip Jomblowski as his first victim that day. Was this because he was the youngest, or because he dared to try and talk Garrow out of going through with his twisted plans? This we will never know. Garrow approached Phil and began to torture him with the blade of the knife, inserting the tip into his chest, leaving puncture wounds that were not fatal. As Phil began to panic and plead loudly with his attacker, Garrow suddenly lost his stomach for his evil game and plunged the entire blade into the boy's chest, puncturing his lung. Phil struggled for one last breath before his body heaved and retched, unable to draw in air. He bled out quickly as the life drained from him. The other two men had also heard the horrifying sounds made by their dying friend. Their panic gave them the burst of adrenaline they needed to break free of their bindings. Nick made a break for it, dashing as fast as he could go towards the closest town for help while still trying to stay hidden from the man with the gun. Dave ran toward where Carol was tied, but Garrow stepped out into his path and pointed the weapon at him. He told Dave his friend better not have run to go get help, and then he forced Dave into the woods to help find him. Still tied to the tree, Carol tried desperately but could not get the ropes around her wrists to loosen. Still seated on the ground, she folded her legs underneath her. This gave her the ability to push herself up against the tree and into a standing position. Now standing, the rope slackened around her wrists, allowing her to work herself free. She ran over to where Phil was tied, but it was clear that the boy was dead. Blood drenched the front of his shirt. There was so much of it, she didn't think it possible that his body could still contain even a drop. She ran in a panic towards the road. Miraculously, a car was just passing by, and she ran almost in front of it. The driver stopped, and Carol screamed about a man who'd kill her if he caught her. The driver and passenger saw the sheer terror in the woman's eyes and told her to jump in. They drove away as fast as possible. Dave would later say that Garrow directed him to search for his friend while holding the gun on him the entire time. Dave's strategy was to take his time, leading Garrow on a wild goose chase, hoping to buy Nick enough time to find help. Dave also realized that Garrow could at any moment turn on him and kill him too. 
he knew what he'd heard in the forest were the sounds of Phil dying. Nick was able to double back out of the woods after Dave so bravely led the killer astray. He returned to his car and drove as fast as he could toward the nearest town. After eight miles, he reached the town of Wells and turned into a restaurant parking lot, his tires screeching to a stop. In a state of shock and panic, Nick jumped onto the roof of his car and began screaming for help. Seeing a young man with long hair and filthy clothes shrieking nonsense while standing on a vehicle, witnesses said they thought he was a hippie on a bad acid trip. Luckily, a waitress thought differently and called to her boss. Mr. Vaudrin, owner of the restaurant, went outside and began trying to calm the young man down. He too thought the boy must be on drugs, but then he saw something odd. The young man had a piece of white rope tied around one of his wrists, jaggedly cut at the edges. Nick was babbling somewhat incoherently about a lunatic in the woods. Mrs. Vaudrin had come outside to see what the commotion was all about. Her husband directed her to retrieve a plastic bag from the restaurant. He removed the rope carefully from Nick's wrist and dropped it into the bag, preserving this piece of evidence. They brought the young man inside while they phoned the state police. Meanwhile, Carol's Good Samaritans had taken her to a gas station in the opposite direction. Police now received a second phone call about a killer in the woods. An investigator and state trooper arrived and ordered roads in and out of the park sealed off. Armed officers were placed at roadblocks. Meanwhile, the restaurant owner, John Vaudrin, grew impatient waiting for police to arrive. Leaving Nick in the restaurant watched over by his wife, he gathered a posse of a few men to check out the area where Nick indicated he'd been camping. They stopped where they saw the tents and noticed trampled grass on the other side of the road. Vaudrin stood back and surveyed the scene. He didn't want to be ambushed by a madman, so he stood in the quiet road where he could see from all sides. As he scanned the area, he noticed two shapes lying in the ditch across the way. He continued to observe them, being careful not to be too obvious. Yes, there was definitely someone lying in the ditch, attempting to remain out of sight. Vaudrin walked closer to the other men and reported what he'd observed. Hearing the men approach, Robert Garrow had forced Dave Freeman into the ditch alongside him to hide. But when Dave saw Vaudrin walking away, and fearing he'd miss his chance to be rescued, he bolted up and out of the ditch and ran towards the men. He rolled behind their car for cover, expecting at any moment to hear the sharp retort of the rifle crack and feel the sharp sting of a bullet in his back. But 19-year-old Freeman could move much faster than his 37-year-old kidnapper. He's got a gun and he's going to shoot, he warned the men before ducking for cover. Vaudrin and the others next watched a second man stand up, turn around, and walk calmly into the forest. Because of his unruffled demeanor, it didn't register with them that this man could be the lunatic they'd heard about. They turned to Dave Freeman, who was desperately trying to convey the urgency of the matter. By the time they finally understood, Robert Garrow had made it back to his car and driven away. The state police investigator made a stop at Vaudrin's restaurant, where Nick had finally begun to calm down enough to share useful information. They placed him in the patrol car, and had him direct them to the campsite. Nick led them to the woods, where they found the body of Phil Dombleski, still tied to the tree. A fresh wave of horror washed over Nick, and he ran, terrified, back to the road. The investigator found the other three trees with white rope still attached to them. It matched the rope found tied to Nick's wrist and around Phil's body. Park rangers and officers were called into the area to clear the campsite of all visitors. A be-on-the-lookout was issued for a killer who was still on the loose. 
Garrow had spent most of his life in the area and knew the Adirondacks well. He drove his orange Volkswagen along mostly untraveled side roads. The dense forest foliage made it difficult and nearly impossible in some places for a search by air. There was six million acres in Adirondack Park in which Garrow could hide. It wasn't until after midnight that a state trooper caught sight of the VW and gave chase. Other units also soon responded. Garrow tried to lose them by driving down narrow winding roads, side roads, and finally drove straight into an area thick with brush. He was able to keep the cops at bay for a time until he crashed his car near Coon Creek. He jumped from the vehicle and ran into the woods, managing to evade his pursuers once more. The largest manhunt in New York State history would unfold over 11 days. Helicopters, bloodhounds, and hundreds of officers were enlisted to track down Robert Garrow. He was identified as the registered owner of the car he was forced to leave behind. His driver's license photo was shown to Carolyn, Nick, and Dave, who identified him as Phillips' killer. Garrow's mugshot, displayed on the nightly news and printed in local papers, was accompanied by details of his criminal history of assaults, rapes, and abductions. Area residents tightly shut and bolted their doors and windows upon learning these details. They preferred to swelter in their homes during the hottest days of summer, rather than fall victim to a madman. Edith Garrow was brought to the search area to persuade her husband to give himself up. Her pleas were broadcast into the woods over loudspeakers. Honey, this is Edith, she pleaded. Won't you please come out? Leave the rifle in the woods. We don't want you to get hurt. There were reported sightings of the fugitive, but he remained at large. Garrow was able to avoid tracking dogs by ducking in and out of streams, but the nights were growing colder, and in wet clothing, he was at risk of hypothermia. There was also the question of how he could survive without food. Investigators knew he had family in the area, including his two sisters, Agnes and Florence. They kept surveillance on their homes, and on August 7th, they finally caught a break. The word was that Garrow had reached his sister's home in Mineville, but by the time officers arrived, he was gone. Agnes, at first, insisted she'd not seen her brother. Finally, she confessed that he had been by, but left quickly, and she didn't know where he'd gone. From Garrow's sister, they also learned that he'd been injured at some point, and his hand was still bleeding. Three days later, on August 10th, with Agnes's house still under surveillance, Garrow's 16-year-old nephew was observed carrying food into the woods behind their home. When police descended onto the property, Garrow sprang up from a clump of trees and ran into the woods, still holding his rifle. Officers issued a warning and then fired, hitting Garrow in the back, legs, and left hand. He continued to resist, but was handcuffed and taken into custody. While Robert Garrow was on the run, investigators noted the similarities between the Danny Porter Sue Pets case and the attack on the young campers. Danny Porter was found slumped near a tree, dead from stab wounds to the chest. A section of white rope was found near the body. Porter was found 25 miles away from where Phil Domblowski was murdered. Sue Pets had been missing for over two weeks when Garrow went on the run. Garrow was taken to a local hospital and treated for his injuries before being booked into jail. His charges included kidnapping, murder, first-degree attempted rape, evading police, and a host of other crimes. While hospitalized, he claimed that the injuries he sustained upon his arrest had left him partially paralyzed. Doctors, however, said there was no evidence that he'd suffered anything more than superficial wounds. Frank Armani was once again called up to defend Garrow. Considering the serious nature of the charges, 
and the fact that three witnesses had identified him as Philip Domblowski's killer, he brought in an additional attorney to help, Francis Belgi. Darrow's defense team wanted to give their client the best chance possible in court, but whenever they would try and get information from him, he would deny, deflect, and stonewall. They approached him with the DA's offer to plead down some of the charges if he could lead them to sue Pets. They hoped they might still find her alive, although they knew it was a long shot. Garrow stayed mum, insisting he had nothing to do with her disappearance or Danny Porter's murder. When they asked him for details about the attack on the campers, Garrow claimed to suffer from memory loss. And Garrow was suspected of a third girl's disappearance now, 16-year-old Alicia Houck, who'd gone missing after leaving her summer school classes one year earlier. Garrow continued to deny he'd had anything to do with either Susan Petz or Alicia Houck's disappearances. Weeks went by, and Garrow's lawyers finally explained that their hands were tied to get him any kind of plea deal unless he came clean with them. He finally agreed to tell his attorneys what happened to Alicia Houck. I picked her up hitchhiking, Garrow told Armani and Belgi, but as was his pattern, the rest of the information he would provide would minimize his crimes and blame his victims for his actions. Garrow confessed to driving the 16-year-old to an isolated spot behind an apartment building. We had sex on the hill behind the apartments, Garrow began. All of a sudden, and for no reason, she tried to run away. She got hysterical. I got scared and hit her with my knife. So far in his confession, Garrow implies he and the teen had consensual sex. Then out of the blue, she, quote, became hysterical and ran away? Makes no sense. But he continues in this absurd vein. It was Alicia who was to blame after, quote, grabbing for his knife. Garrow says he got scared and, quote, hit her with my knife. Was Alicia dead, his attorneys asked? Yes, I think so, was his answer. Nowhere in his so-called confession does he use the words kidnap, rape, attack, or kill. He had intercourse with her, hit her with his knife. Well, you get the picture. After hearing his story, the attorneys knew the only shot they had at any mercy by the court was to convince Garrow to tell the DA where he'd taken Alicia's body. This Garrow would not do. He would, however, tell his lawyers. After Alicia was dead, he hid her body in the Oakwood Cemetery in Syracuse, he told them. The cemetery was located just about a mile from his own home. He'd hidden her body in a back corner of the cemetery that held ancient graves and was rarely visited by anyone. He'd covered the body with leaves and dirt. He then drove home and had dinner with his wife and family. He next confessed to killing Danny Porter. It was already growing dark when Danny and Susan had arrived at the area where they planned to camp. Garrow was sitting in his BW along a narrow section of Waddell Road that led to the campsite. He had propped his driver's door open and it was partially blocking the road. Danny stopped to ask Garrow if he wouldn't mind closing his door so they could get by. This part rings somewhat true, but we also have to consider that Garrow was lying in wait for a couple to turn down that road toward the campsite. It's possible that upon seeing Danny and Susan, he opened his door to create a need for Danny to stop his car. But now, Garrow says, he and Danny got into an argument. He said he couldn't remember exactly what happened, but Daniel, quote, was killed from knife wounds after the argument again, using passive language to minimize his responsibility for the murder. In his confession regarding Susan, Garrow at least begins to tell the truth. Susan tried to come to her boyfriend's aid, but Garrow admitted he hit her on the head and kidnapped her. He held her hostage for four days. 
Gero now begins to voice a fantasy he's created of this awful assault, saying that Susan was polite during their time together, and they had, quote, a wonderful conversation. On the fourth day, Susan tried to escape, and that's when he had to hurt her, Gero would claim. Quote, I had put my knife on the ground, and she grabbed it. We had a fight. I finally got my knife away from her, and she got stabbed. Sue Pet stood at five foot two inches tall and weighed 110 pounds. Gero towered over her at almost six feet tall and weighed over 100 pounds more. Where was Sue's body, they asked. I shoved her body down the air shaft of a mine, he admitted. Armani and Belgi advised their client to confess to these crimes and divulge where the missing women's bodies could be found. Not only would this give their families at least some comfort to bury their loved ones, but his cooperation might be looked upon favorably by the court, they explained. Garrow refused. Now his attorneys were in a real pickle. They knew the fate and approximate location of two missing women, but were ethically bound as Garrow's counsel not to reveal this information. Any information shared by a client with their attorney is considered privileged and is protected communication. An attorney cannot be compelled to reveal this information even by police, the courts, or the district attorney. For the time being, Garrow's confession would remain secret. Garrow's attorneys decided to corroborate their client's confession to the murders of Susan Petz and Alicia Houck by looking for the bodies themselves. Garrow said he'd dropped the body of Susan Petz down a mine shaft near Mineville, New York. Long abandoned mines dotted the hills surrounding the town, hence its name. So Garrow gave them detailed directions as best as he could recall them. They searched one area on foot for hours without finding anything. Finally, they began to recognize the geographical markers Garrow had provided and Francis Belgi lowered himself inside one promising-looking mine opening. Shining a flashlight down into the darkness, he saw something. He called to Armani and asked him to hand him down a Polaroid camera. After snapping a few photos, he returned topside, and he and Armani studied them. There was no doubt. There was a body at the bottom. It was late August, and Susan Petz had been missing for more than six weeks. They pondered what to do with this information. But in the end, no matter how much they wished they could tell Susan's parents what they discovered, they were bound by their obligation as Garrow's attorneys to keep it to themselves. It gnawed on them, but they felt they had no choice but to remain silent. And yet, they still felt it was their duty to search for Garrow's other victim, Alicia Houck. No one but his attorneys knew at the time that Garrow was connected with the teen's disappearance, although some suspected as much. Belgi and Armani searched the Oakwood Cemetery in Syracuse, but found nothing. They returned to the jail and got more specific details from Garrow, including a hand-drawn map. The following day, Belgi returned to the cemetery, taking along a friend when Armani could not return. It took most of the afternoon, but they finally located Alicia's remains behind a thick grove of bushes and covered over by leaves and dirt. She'd been missing for over a year, and her remains were in an advanced state of decomposition, and partially destroyed due to animal predation. Belgi brought his instant camera again. The head had separated from the body, and the skull was discovered a few feet away. The attorney picked it up and placed it at the top end of what remained of the skeleton. He snapped a couple of photos and returned to town. As an officer of the court, Belgi should have realized that he was altering a crime scene and tampering with evidence by moving the body part. The thought didn't occur to him at that time 
but later it would become an issue. Alicia Hoke's parents remained stuck in limbo, waiting for their daughter to come home. Six months later, a Syracuse University student was walking through Oakwood Cemetery when he stumbled upon her bones. She was identified through dental records. Her family finally had some answers, but not all. They laid her to rest in St. Mary's Cemetery in DeWitt. On Thanksgiving, two boys were taking a walk in the Mineville area and exploring the abandoned mine shafts when they discovered the remains of Susan Pets. The location of this discovery closely matched the place where Susan's mother had been told she'd be found. Desperate for answers about her missing daughter, she had consulted a psychic who described just such a place. Robert Garrow's trial for the murder of 18-year-old Philip Domblowski began on June 10, 1974. The prosecutor was seeking the maximum penalty allowed by the court, arguing, quote, anyone who's committed a crime and shows no compassion or mercy for his victims or society should not be shown mercy or compassion, end quote. Garrow had allowed his attorneys to enter a plea of not guilty by reason of insanity. To show how damaged the defendant was mentally, emotionally, and psychologically at the time of his crimes, his defense detailed Garrow's childhood of abuse and bullying. Garrow's parents were to blame for his lack of empathy, non-existent social skills, and inability to navigate the world and its stressors in a positive, healthy way, they told the court. Armani told the jury, quote, We don't have the proper defendant in this court. His parents are prime examples of fathers and mothers failing to take care of, tend to, and love their children. Garrow, for his part, cut a pathetic figure sitting in a wheelchair and barely moving. He now claimed he was partially paralyzed on one side after being shot by police. Doctors disputed this claim. But the harrowing testimony provided by the surviving three campers, Carolyn Malinowski, Daniel Freeman, and Nick Riorello, was damning to the defense. All three testified to Garrow's calm demeanor and methodical way in which he carried out their abduction. This portrayal completely contradicted the defense's claim that his upbringing so mentally damaged Garrow that he was unable to think rationally and was not in control of his actions. The graphic photos of the crime scene and the body of the victim, Philip Demblowski, shocked and horrified the jury members. They were citizens of the surrounding peaceful and bucolic towns and villages of Hamilton County, the same place Robert Garrow hailed from. It was hard for them to fathom that this man, responsible for monstrous acts perpetrated on innocent people, was one of their own. It did not look good for the defense. Garrow had insisted in taking part in his defense. Now with the case looking airtight against their client, they must have decided they had nothing to lose. They called Robert Garrow to the stand to testify on his own behalf. He gave graphic testimony about the beatings he endured at the hands of his parents and toiling from sunup to sundown as a hired farmhand when he was still a young boy. He talked about being sexually abused by other men and himself sexually abusing farm animals. He admitted to spending time in prison for assault, rape, and burglary. He also admitted to kidnapping the two little girls in Geddes and forcing them to perform sexual acts. The defense hoped that Garrow would come across to the jury as a deeply damaged individual who couldn't control his impulses, but this strategy failed. Garrow spoke in a very matter-of-fact tone, even when describing heinous crimes he'd committed against children and animals. He dodged questions by claiming to suffer from memory loss, but could recall and recite very disturbing details in other instances. He picked and chose what questions he wanted to answer, and evaded others very deliberately. But then Garrow dropped an even bigger bombshell. He admitted in detail how he had killed Daniel Porter and Susan Petz, 
mere days before he attacked the campers. He described his run-in with Porter as, quote, an argument, and before I knew it, I don't know exactly what happened. I try to tell you as much as I can by putting pieces together. This guy got killed, end quote. Belgi asked him about the girl that was with Porter. She came out to help, and I hit her, Garrow answered. He then described how he'd kept Susan Pets captive for four days and raped her repeatedly. On the fourth day, when she tried to escape, Garrow said, I guess I stabbed her. He'd pushed her body down a mine shaft and then ended up at his sister's house. He claimed he didn't remember all the details because he often became confused when committing acts of violence. But Garrow wasn't done confessing on the stand. He next told a rapt courtroom about picking up Alicia Hauk. He began the story by stating, To put it bluntly, she is dead. He said he saw her hitchhiking, quote, She skipped summer school that day. We had a conversation and everything, you know, and so we had intercourse there. This is down below the cemetery. We got into a little argument, and she grabbed a hold of my knife, and everything went berserk after that. I don't remember much of it. She could have been 16, 17, 18, I don't know. I don't even know her name. We fell on the ground. I just went berserk, that's all, end quote. And again, using language that disconnects his own actions from the events, Garrow concludes, she was strangled with a rope or with a piece of wire or something. Garrow's next statements to the court firmly threw his attorneys under the bus. He told the jury how he told Frank Armani and Francis Belgi about the details of these murders and the location of the bodies months earlier. He said they had brought photos they'd taken of the bodies for him to identify. The jury was horrified and the public would be outraged upon learning this. On June 27, 1974, the trial concluded and the jury retired to begin deliberations. In just two hours, they returned their verdict. Garrow was found guilty of the first-degree murder of Philip Domblowski. He displayed no emotion when the verdict was announced. The following week, his sentence was handed down. Robert Garrow would spend the next 25 years to life behind bars. Before being sent to Clinton Correctional Facility, Garrow only said, I'm sorry it happened. It was a lukewarm apology at best. While the public breathed a sigh of relief that Garrow would no longer be stalking their communities, many still were calling for his attorneys to face the consequences of their actions as well. A very vocal debate took place on talk radio, in newsrooms, and between neighbors. Some harshly criticized Belgi and Armani for keeping Garrow's secrets, even while families grieved and were suffering daily, not knowing the fate of their loved ones. But others agreed with the attorney's decision not to break attorney-client privilege as their professional code of ethics dictated. The court directed the State Bar Association to investigate Armani and Belgi's actions. They were to determine if Garrow's defense team had breached any ethical violations. In addition, they were looking into whether Belgi's disturbance of the crime scene constituted a criminal act. A grand jury began proceedings in February of 1975. At the conclusion, Francis Belgi was indicted for health law violations, specifically pertaining to a speedy burial. It appeared the court felt obligated to find something to charge the attorney with, even a minor one, to appease the public. Armani was completely exonerated. While this may have been a mere slap on the wrist, the ordeal had taken a toll on both attorneys. Both of their law practices dried up. Armani suffered a heart attack the day the grand jury handed down its decision, and Belgi quit practicing law altogether, retiring to Florida. Armani recovered and continued defending clients for several more years. 
we're not quite done with Robert Garrow, although by this point in the story, if you're like me, you'd be happy never to hear his name uttered again. Sorry, but I'll wrap it up quick. Garrow filed a $10 million lawsuit against New York State, claiming he was a victim of unfair treatment, including police brutality, during his first years in prison. He was also still claiming to be partially paralyzed as a result of being shot while evading police. Perhaps because of the lawsuit or his continued claims that he was an invalid who needed special medical considerations, Garrow was transferred from the maximum security prison at Dannemora to a medium security prison in Fishkill, New York, in September of 1977. He was placed in the unit dedicated for elderly inmates and those with physical disabilities. Garrow was allowed visitors at Fishkill, and they were even permitted to bring in food from outside the prison. In September 1978, Garrow's now 18-year-old son, Robert Jr., brought in a KFC chicken bucket. At the bottom of the familiar red and white striped bucket, he smuggled in a 32 caliber automatic handgun. Garrow fashioned a dummy and placed it in his bed as a stand-in for the guard's hourly bed checks. On the evening of September 8th, spree killer Robert Garrow simply walked out of the prison facility, climbed over a chain-link fence, and disappeared into the woods. His absence would not be discovered until the next morning. When area residents learned of Garrow's escape, they were understandably angry, upset, and terrified that the killer was on the loose once again. What might a desperate escapee resort to to remain at large, they thought. The possibilities were terrifying. A special squad trained to handle prison emergencies including riots, unruly inmates, and escapees was quickly mobilized. Officers from several nearby counties arrived to participate in the search for the fugitive. In addition, helicopters, tracking dogs, and all-terrain vehicles were dispatched to cover as much ground as possible. They cast a wide net, knowing that Garrow could be even hundreds of miles away if he'd had help. But surprisingly, Garrow was much closer than they suspected. He'd made it only 200 yards into the woods before digging a hole and camouflaging himself with dirt and leaves. He remained lying still while the search continued nearby. It appeared he planned to wait it out until searchers gave up and the coast was clear. He lay still as a dead man in his forest hole, hiding in place for three days. But one sharp-eyed member of the specially trained team discovered a transistor radio just a few yards outside prison walls. He'd patrolled the same area just after the escape was discovered, and the radio hadn't been there earlier. They traced the serial number and identified it as the property of Robert Garrow. Searchers were now convinced he was still close by. On September 11th, a young officer, Dominic Arena, patrolled an area between the prison and the interstate. If Garrow was waiting for someone to pick him up, the accomplice would have had to travel down this section of the interstate, so the search team had monitored it closely. As Arena patrolled the area again that evening, he heard a noise in the brush nearby. Suddenly, the escapee emerged from his hiding place and began firing his weapon at the officer. Arena was hit in the leg and fell, but other team members were there instantly and returned gunfire. Garrow was hit with a volley of gunfire and fell dead. Three bullets had hit him in the chest, puncturing his heart and lungs. The nightmare that had gripped the Adirondacks was over. Last details of this story. Robert Garrow Jr. was charged with smuggling a gun into the state prison to help his father escape. He pled guilty in 1978. Edith Garrow, Robert Garrow's wife, still lives in Syracuse in the same home she shared with her late husband. She has declined all interview requests. Michelle Garrow, his daughter, married and moved away from Syracuse. She would eventually divorce and has since died of leukemia. David Mandy, 
Garrow's 16-year-old nephew, once caught delivering food to his fugitive uncle, is now a corrections officer. Robert Garrow, dead at age 42, is buried in Oakwood Cemetery, not far from where he hid Alicia Hulk's body. Francis Belgi quit his law practice and moved to Florida. He died of a heart attack at age 63. Frank Armani, Garrow's longtime attorney, still lives outside Syracuse with his wife Mary and his dog named Judge. Decades after their controversial decision to withhold their knowledge of where two of Garrow's victims' bodies could be found, Armani and Belgi's reputations have been restored. Law scholars now agree that their decision to maintain their client's confidentiality was the most ethical choice, even as it came at great cost to them both personally and professionally. This case is now taught in law school ethics courses across the country, and their actions are used as an example for others. In 2006, Frank Armani was awarded a Distinguished Attorney Award from the Onondaga County Bar Association. He is now 83 years old. A book about this case was just published. Titled Sworn to Silence, The Truth Behind Robert Garrow and the Missing Bodies Case, it was written by Jim Tracy. Tracy spoke with most of the major players and family members connected to this case. It's a great resource, so I highly recommend it if you'd like to get more details. That will do it for this episode of Once Upon a Crime, and that will wrap up our two-part series on Robert Garrow's Free Killer. But as you know, I always have extra details that don't make it into the episode. This time I have a couple of crazy side stories about two close family members of Robert Garrow who would also be charged with brutal crimes. That bonus episode will be available on Patreon. You can join our Patreon and receive early release, ad-free episodes, bonus episodes, podcast swag, and more starting at just $2 a month. Next month, I'm starting the Patreon-only Once Upon a Book Club, where you and I will read one of my recommended true crime books and have a chat about it. Go to patreon.com slash onceuponacrime to find out more and sign up. Next weekend, September 25th and 26th, I'll be in London for CrimeCon UK. Come out and see me on Podcast Row and pick up some cool OUAC swag I'll be giving away. You can still get tickets and use my code onceupon21 for 10% off your ticket. If you can't get there, don't worry. Just follow me on social media and join the party virtually. I'll be sharing photos, videos, and might even be live streaming from CrimeCon with some of your other favorite podcasters. Follow me on Facebook and Instagram at Once Upon a Crime Pod, on Twitter at Upon a Crime, and TikTok at OUAC Pod. Then make sure to hit follow to get notified of updates live from London. I can't wait. Once Upon a Crime is written, produced, and edited by me, Esther Ludlow. Special thanks to Lorena Garcia for the final sound mix of this episode and help with extra research on this case. Until next time, be good to one another.